violence, stardom, strangling, hot crowds, carny scams, and even a little pro wrestling. Today, it's the story of Cora Livingston, part two. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. Hey, you did it. You pressed the button. You're listening to the episode. Hopefully you're on Wi-Fi or downloaded it on Wi-Fi. If you're streaming, I hope you have unlimited data. And if you're on a family plan, somebody could be mad at you. Especially if you listen to this a lot, which you should be. I hope you are. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. I am a pro wrestling ring announcer. But more importantly for the day, I am a pro wrestling historian. And I am here with a special guest host, just like last week, one of my favorite pro wrestlers, Heidi Howitzer. How the heck are you? Oh, howdy, howdy, howdy. I'm great because they pressed play and now they have to listen to us talk for approximately an hour. Sucks to be them. I mean, aren't they blessed? Yes, it's important to make this sound like a hostage situation right out of the gate. (laughs) Right off the bat. There is no escape. There is only compliance. And we're getting back into the life of Cora Livingston. This is Cora Livingston Part 2. And yes, Part 2 implies there is a Part 1. Did you listen to Part 1? If you didn't, hit pause, check that one out, get all excited for Part 2, and come back and join us right now. Because we've already covered her life as an orphan, growing up in a convent, escaping from the convent, joining the circus, and getting into the wild world of pro wrestling. We finished the last episode with the first big meeting between Cora Livingston and her rival, Laura Bennett. It ended with hairpins coming undone, hair tumbling down, an attempt to fix one's hair mid-match, frustration ensues, leads to a pinfall, everyone's grouchy about it. Yes, it's as weird as it sounds. Listen to the end of part one for details. Look, I gotta say, as a woman in professional wrestling, well, yes, we're phenomenal. Fuck guys, we do everything they can and all that. But if my hair is getting fucked with at a match, that's definitely going to distract me. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. Well, hair pulling, fine. Fuck up my hair, we're throwing hands. And rightfully so. I do want to give my usual disclaimer on the show that I am doing the best research I can with what is available to me. Fortunately, we live in the year 2023. One of the few reasons I'm glad I live in the year 2023, that I'm able to access online newspaper archives. I'm able to get my my hands deep in the digital news and find all the source material that survives from this day. The downside is she was a woman athlete. She was a star. I mean, she was newsworthy. She was in the papers, but she was still a woman athlete in the early 1900s, toiling in the shadow of the male stars like Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt and Tom Jenkins, who were competing in front of tens of thousands of people for thousands of dollars. Cora Livingston was relegated to the burlesque calls, the vaudeville stages and she was competing sometimes in front of a few thousand people usually it was hundreds it's still a lot of people showing up to see her perform and earning hundreds of dollars again with inflation that is still a lot of money but there was still a significant pay and audience gap for the men in the sport doing the same thing that she was doing thank goodness all of that has changed since then don't worry guys Don't worry, guys. Things have changed a ton, and women in sports definitely make just as much money as men now. Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, thank goodness we live in a time of absolute gender equality in sports where all inequity has been fixed. What a utopia. So we'll jump back in with an article from the South Carolina State on November 25th, 1907. Just a short article about how Cora Livingston and Celia Pontos, quote, who were said to give a fine exhibition of the mat game in Kansas City. Celia Pontos was back. 
You might remember from the last episode how Celia Pontos came down to challenge Cora Livingston. Pontos was listed as the champion of Canada because, of course, she was. Her and her husband, Carl, were very prolific circus wrestlers and were a married couple. This was a very common thing in those days because a lot of times the wrestlers were also carnival strongmen, strong women, and when you're in a traveling circus, you tend to just hook up with whatever weirdo on the circus you have the most in common with. So husband and wife, wrestlers and strong women, strong men, strong people were very common in that era. Don't worry, guys. I definitely didn't murder. Uh, murder. Jesus, Mary. There we go another wrestler okay that escalated quickly and that certainly didn't give away your future plans <laughs> dark side of the ring heidi howitzer edition the same paper mentioned her again on december 16th 1907 with quote miss cora livingston and miss clara wilson the women wrestlers will also be seen miss wilson styles herself the western female champion and she is going to wrest the american title from miss livingston on form, there is little chance of her doing so. But form is a bad thing in wrestling, as it is when backing a sure thing in a horse race. And people never fix matches, huh? Exactly their point, because match fixing was prevalent in almost every sport imaginable. Wrestling, boxing, horse races, tug of war. If you can bet on it, there was somebody trying to fix it to make money off of it. That's why there's athletic commissions now, because if you could find a way to rip people off in the betting arena with a fixed sport, somebody was trying to do it. And that's why you see digs like that all the time in the media. Yes, it seems like a sure thing, but a sure thing ain't a sure thing. Wink, wink, wink. Good. <laughs> And moving into the next year, on January 7th, 1908, from the Detroit Times, promoter Benny Clock has a female wrestler in his string who will tackle cute little Cora Livingston at the Avenue tonight, meaning the Avenue Theater. And yes, cute little Cora Livingston, I'm not sure that's how she wanted to be advertised, but I'm sure it sold tickets, and in the end, that's the most important part, I suppose. Detroit would become a wrestling boomtown, an entertainment boomtown, because the auto industry was now in full swing. There were a lot of jobs, a lot of money to be made, so vaudeville and cabaret theaters definitely started cleaning up in this era. Well, there wasn't much else to do during that time, but I gotta say, I feel like that would do well now as well, so there you go. From the Hartford Current on January 7th, 1908, an announcement that Cora Livingston would be coming east to perform her challenge matches. Quote, a few days ago, she threw Mae Colbert in six minutes. Charlie Weiderman found a strong woman in Detroit that he sent against Miss Livingston. There were two timers. Weiderman claimed that time was up, and the other said there were two minutes to go. Weiderman rushed on the mat and pulled the grapplers apart, thereby committing a foul, and the match was awarded to the champion. And if you watch pro wrestling, you know and understand that nothing sets up future business like a schmozzy goofball finish like this, where there's an argument and it's inconclusive. Oh, there were two minutes left. No, the match was up and the manager comes in to stop things and the crowd is mad because it got stopped and there's an argument about why it got stopped and the champion retains and looks strong. The challenger still has a grievance as to why she should have won and that keeps her strong. And the only person who looks bad is the promoter and sometimes that's how it has to be. Sometimes so the usual. Happens. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I love that. It's all right. The ref doesn't get off scot-free either. So, you know, you're supposed to respect the official, right? That's what I hear anyway. The following day, the same paper had a feature on her. Quote, Cora Livingston, as she is known to the official programmers, is an orphan, a runaway from a Catholic home, naturally of athletic tastes. She took up wrestling and has successfully defeated Hazel Parker, champion of America, Bessie Farrar, champion of England, and Miss Lons, champion of France, as well as many others. I gotta say, there's not enough people calling themselves the champion of America these days. We've got the United States champion, 
national champion, whatever, television champion. Champion of America is solid. I don't know. The the term champion of America kind of feels like it has a certain connotation, a certain implication to it. He sounds like somebody Captain America would have to beat up. Like, like I was going to say, like fucking Peacemaker. Yeah, it just kind of feels sleazy. Champion of America sounds like somebody who has opinions about immigration that I don't want to hear. So he's a white middle class man. Yeah, so maybe we don't bring that one back. <laughs> Fair enough. Well played. Carry on. Back to the article. Wrestling is a pretty rough sport, and whether or not Miss Livingston is going to manage to popularize it for women is a doubtful matter, but there is no ground for hesitation regarding the way she herself exemplifies her ideas. With her, it is not a burlesque, but it is wrestling all the time, as many of her opponents who have thought the game a mere romp have learned to their sorrow and at the expense of some mighty hard bumps for, on the mat, the little American champion wrestles every minute. There isn't a hold in the game that she does not know. Frank Gotch, Hackenschmidt, McLeod, and many other men have been interested enough in her work to give her attention and tutelage. Her act is as far from burlesque as the male competitors, and there is abundant corroboratory evidence of her ability in the reports which have marked her tours through the country. Wrestling by women may not strike the average sportsman seriously, but Miss Livingston's demonstration shows beyond question that it can serve to bring out strength, skill, speed, and indomitable pluck. Oh, indomitable pluck. Uh, also a thing that should be said more these days, gotta say. And I really like the way this article was worded because it was very much, women's wrestling may not be popular, it may not become popular, but Cora Livingston is bringing it. She is worth paying attention to. She is a real athlete. She's not there to look pretty. She's not there to put on a silly goose burlesque performance. She's there to fight. Fuck people up. And say that like, she actually, you know, has the respect of her uh, male peers, you know, which is not, uh, all the others are talking about like, oh, it's not like the men or it's not to the extent that the men are doing, but look at these, look at these ladies try their best. Look at them, look at them just going out there and giving it the old college try. So it's nice to see an article, dirt sheet, what what have you, actually put her over as a legitimate um, grappler, wrestler. Yes, because her style of wrestling lent itself to realism and violence. She wasn't what people were used to in a woman wrestler, which is a strong woman, as in like a circus strong woman, who was doing Greco-Roman wrestling. That was the typical thing women wrestlers were doing in the 1800s. It was a circus act. Watch me lift this heavy thing. And now I will Greco-Roman wrestle somebody, another woman, whether it's a challenge or a demonstration, sometimes against a man if there is a certain catch weight limit. But no, she was a catch-as-catch-can rules style wrestler, and she made it even more aggressive inside of the construct of that kind of wrestling. She was a grab-a-hold, crank-a-hold, keep cranking it even until the referee is trying to break it up. She was aggressive. She was violent. She was not just out there to wrestle you. She was trying to create harm. She was going for the eyes. She was throwing punches. She was pulling hair. She was strangling. She was the epitome of spectacle as violence to sell tickets. Yeah, which is nice to see because again, you really didn't get that from women's wrestling at any point prior to that. Um, it was a lot prettier, just like what everyone expects women's wrestling to be. So it was nice to see some variation on a theme, if you will. From the Buffalo Courier on January 16th, 1908, announcing Livingston at the Lafayette Theater the following week as part of a women's tournament. Quote, the tournament will be in conjunction with minors, the Americans Burlesque Company. Because keep in mind that 
wrestling a lot of times, especially with women's wrestling, especially with Cora Livingston's career, was part of a greater night of entertainment. It wasn't just going to a wrestling show or going to a wrestling match. You would go and you would hear a band play and listen to a yodeler and watch a juggler and then an acrobat routine and then a short comedy play followed by a punster. And then you would have a wrestling match or two wrestling matches or the challenge matches as part of a greater night of entertainment. See, that sounds like a nice time. A little little bit of juggling, some puns. Really got to learn how to juggle. That's what's been missing from modern wrestling. There's, there's not enough juggling. Yeah, it really does need to be a gimmick for somebody. We have a pizza-making wrestler. We have a cartwheel wrestler. I feel a juggling wrestler is the next gimmick to turn someone to a star. It's going to take off. Trust me. I'll, I'll just become more coordinated. I don't think so. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> From the Buffalo Morning Press on January 22nd, 1908, Cora Livingston strikes a tartar. Personally notable because I had to look up the term strike a tartar, which means to deal with something which is very difficult. And that tartar in question, that was Miss Bessie Thompson, quote, who suddenly locked the champion and downed her in 14 minutes. Keep in mind that when someone beats or outlasts a champion in a time limit gimmick match, it's to set up a match to a proper finish with a title on the line, a great way to keep it fresh and draw money. So yeah, it's the come out, I will wrestle whoever is taking the challenge. Oh, they somehow beat me or they outlasted me. Well then, everybody should come back on Saturday and buy another ticket and see me wrestle this person to a finish for the title. Now, Nick, I have a question for you. What was um, kind of the standard match length or match range you would see in those days? Well, in the context of this story, uh, with Cora Livingston, she's performing in matches that are part of an overall night of entertainment. So they would do these 10-minute challenge matches. And if they outlasted that 10 minutes and won their cash prize, well, they can come back for a 15-minute match. And if they outlast the 15 minutes, well, then it's to a finish. But that to a finish, literally until somebody wins type of match with, quote, no time limit, it's not going to be like the big matches that men like Tom Jenkins and Frank Gotch would have where it could literally go two hours because you know what? Nobody's got that time at a vaudeville show in a burlesque call. So those are going to still be around the 10, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minute mark because you know what? You can't go over your time when the yodeler still has to perform and the chorus girls have to come do a number to close the show. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, okay, cool. Also on January 22nd, the Buffalo Inquirer published Miss Livingston's Hard Match. Of course, they misspelled it. We called her Miss Livingstone, but it's the thought that counts. Quote, Bessie Thompson, who last year gave the woman champion wrestler trouble in handicapped affairs, last night defeated Cora Livingston in their bout at the Lafayette. Miss Thompson was heavier than the champion and roughed the battle from the outset, winning after 14 minutes. Miss Livingston then tried to get her to sign for a finish match, but she would not consent last night. Again, this is great booking because, you know what? Cora Livingston is going to be leaving town soon. She is a touring champion, going from burlesque theater to burlesque theater, city to city. And you know what this does? It makes her look vulnerable. So when she comes back, they can have that big two of finish match because she's leaving town. And Bessie Thompson, if she were actually Bessie Thompson and actually a local, we'll talk a little bit about that later, was there as a residential wrestler, well, now she has that top wrestler status. She is now a hot draw because she beat Cora Livingston, but not in a proper to a finish match. So there's still business to be done. There's still mysteries to solve. There is still a struggle to be had for that title, but it sets up contenders for down the road. It makes a person a hot draw for that theater for the time being, and there is business to be done eventually. It's called storytelling. Maybe you should learn something about that. 
yeah, maybe I should take notes, like the notes I took to do this show. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there weren't very many involved in that. This is all from memory, right? I wrote this all down on my hand. Perfect. Okay. From the Buffalo Morning Express on January 24th, wrestler Cora Downs Lou, quote, it wasn't a case of linger longer Lou. And yes, that was the headline. <laughs> Cora defeated Lou Harris in 10 minutes, 15 seconds. She will meet Bertha Smith this evening. And that match, according to the Buffalo News the next day, ended with Livingston winning in 14 minutes, 30 seconds. Quote, it was a most spectacular bout, and several times both were near defeat. Whew, the drama. <laughs> what will happen next? From the January 26, 1908, Washington Herald, and that's Washington, D.C., not state, covers Livingston's appearance at the Kerman's Lyceum Theater, where she'll be meeting all challengers, with $25 to any woman she cannot throw in 15 minutes. She's described as Canadian, of French parentage, 19 years old, who is, quote, a polished wrestler who thoroughly understands the game. She learned the finer points of the sport from Dan McLeod, one of the best in the country in his day, and Frank Gotch. Because, of course, they bring it back to Frank Gotch. Frank Gotch was one of the biggest sports stars in the country at that time. Not just wrestling. He was a sports icon. He was an enormous star. He was like Hulk Hogan during the height of Hulkamania. And it was imperative for marketing purposes to try to tie everything wrestling to him in one way or another. Did he ever meet Cora Livingston? I honestly don't know. Could he have met her and offered her some praise and some tips on her toehold? It's entirely possible. Did she routinely hit the gym under his tutelage to learn catch-as-catch-can tactics and how to be a dirty wrestler throwing elbows? Probably not. Almost certainly not. But again, in these days, nobody was fact-checking anything on Twitter. Right. I like to think she was just a fucking worker and they never even met eyes. The Washington Times on January 26, 1908, Cora Livingston to meet all comers, female, this week. Article starts with rundown of all the wrestling stars in D.C. at the time, including Strongman Farley, who threw a fit when he thought he saw a ghost, but now the climax is to be reached at a female grappler. First of all, phrasing, guys, phrasing. But I love that in this rundown of famous wrestlers in the city at the time, they point out strongman Farley, who got scared and freaked out because he thought he saw a ghost. I love that. Like, whoa, what? <laughs> That's an advertising point, apparently. I like to think that that became his gimmick after that, where every match he would lose because his opponent's manager would come out with a sheet over him like a classic boo ghost and goes woo i'm a ghost and while being freaked out his opponent rolls him up for the pin i would love someone to do that now please that's is that so much to ask i don't think so i think it's a small a small price to pay for entertainment the January 28th Washington Herald reported that a challenger lost a match because her coach kept walking on the mat to coach her until the referee had enough. Again, gotta keep things inconclusive for the sake of drama, otherwise a non-stop winner or a non-stop loser will grow stale, people will get bored, they will stop buying tickets, so you create drama where you can find it. Hence, the coach walks onto the mat, is being emphatic about his coaching until the referee is just sick of it and DQs her right there on the spot, making the referee look like a real silly goose. Everybody's mad at the referee. Everybody feels the match should be continued. Everybody has an opinion on who was going to win, and therefore they will buy tickets to see a rematch down the road. Very important. You got to keep, uh, keep things interesting. Especially if, like what you're saying, a lot of these times it's the same people working, just maybe under a different pseudonym, which that doesn't necessarily anyone, mean anyone's going to cotton on because, you know, travel and no, no Twitter. Um, but still, got to keep it fresh. 
And the DC drama continued with the Washington Times on January 28th reported that Livingston was to take on May Colbert at the matinee show and Bertha Starks that night. The evening was interrupted when, quote, a loud male person in the upper box announced that he had a lady wrestler on hand who must be accommodated at once with a match or he would go thence and declare Clara, obviously he meant Cora, a fraud. Cora's manager, Will Rome, told the guy to get in line because Livingston had a match already. Quote, the aggressive male backer of the unknown made such a holler that the gallery cut in and created so much noise that Governor Kernan ordered Rome to let his challenger meet the new aspirant. Bertha was sidetracked, and the unknown soon appeared in regulation wrestling costume and ready for the fray, which was rather rude to Bertha Starks. Yeah, how dare. The audacity. The showmanship, the drama of it, it's fantastic. The match is about to start when some asshole in the balcony just starts yelling about how this match is BS and he's got a real challenger. And if she doesn't get a shot at Cora this very minute, well, then Cora is a phony, a fraud, a paper tiger, if you will. <laughs> oh, a paper tiger. Yeah, how would you like that one? I like, those are good apples. And the crowd gets so riled up by this, they're so fired up, they're so rowdy, they're so noisy, that the venue owner comes out and says, okay, fine, we will let this match happen, by golly, for, um, reasons? Gosh darn it. The match with the unknown was rough, with Livingston breaking the rules and pulling her hair the match went out of bounds over the footlights and the loudmouth broke up the match while Cora was working a modified stranglehold of some kind. Rome declared that the match was illegally broken up and hadn't gone the full 15 minutes and thus the unknown was disqualified. Quote, the audience demanded that the unknown get the coin, but the curtain was rung down as the unknown was trying to make a speech. A crowd of excited small boys stood around the stage door and roasted members of the company as they came out until the police dispersed the participants. Oh, so it was very rowdy. The Washington Times covered the same story, concluding with, quote, feeling ran high in the audience. Yes, loud, angry feeling. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Maybe a little... A little lack of uh, journalistic, uh, how do I put this, uh, elaborate, like a little more something something could be added to that, a little more pizzazz. Yep, it needs a little zazz. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Words are hard. And if you were feeling bad for Bertha Starks, no need. Cora Livingston faced Bertha Starks the next night, according to the Washington Herald. Quote, The bout attracted wide interest, and when referee Stanley Karp declared Miss Livingston had gained a fall after 10 minutes, although Miss Stark's shoulders were far from the mat, the protests were so violent that the management continued the bout. Miss Starks also showed her disapproval by making a vicious pass at the referee who saved his face by a quick sidestep. Stark managed to go the full 15 and won the $25. I'm glad the ref saved his face. Bloody had good reflexes. Yeah, you know the referee's doing a good job when one of the wrestlers takes a fucking swing at him. <laughs> Count faster, motherfucker. The Washington Times on the 29th covered Cora's brutality in the match. Quote, Cora was fain to get a little relief by vigorous use of her elbows on her rival's face. Cora had the more experience, and when she had the upper hand, massaged the other girl's neck with those same elbows until the belligerent Bertha was temporarily tamed. Cora got a number of holds which should have been effective, but failed to carry them through. With a very nifty scissor, she twisted Bertha's neck until the latter gurgled, Jesus. but did not know when to get an additional hold on the victim's arms and completed the fall. When they restarted the match, Cora kneed her rival's back, and Bertha bounced Cora upon the mat with so much earnestness that the hair of the championess came loose from the numerous pins by which it was held. Not safe to have hair in this era. 
So we have another case of heel champ brutalizing opponent, but losing handicapped match, technically. So here we have Cora Livingston finding her voice as a performer, as a character, by becoming a violent heel, getting the crowd outraged to sell tickets based on her violent rule-breaking and behavior. So for the longest time, we had had babyface heroes in pro wrestling. Farmer Burns, Dan McLeod, Tom Jenkins, Frank Gotch, but she maybe took a page from history a few decades before with Evan the Strangler Lewis, who was a great heel champion with his brutality and his viciousness and his stranglehold, getting the crowd so angry at his behavior, at him as a person, that they would nearly riot. So she understood that in order to compete on equal footing with the men as a draw, she had to find her own angle. If you can't be better, be different. You draw through spectacle. So she was ECW before ECW. From the Washington Times on January 30th, 1908, Championess gets another surprise. The Sago versus the Unknown from the other week continues with a rematch. 10 minutes of solid wrestling with unknown on the defensive, but being technically sound enough to escape whatever Cora threw at her. Quote, she makes it so interesting that Cora became fretted and resorted to much rough work, which the unknown resented by a scientific bit of elbowing that spoiled Cora's complexion. A scientific bit of elbowing that spoiled her complexion. I love that. Cora managed to get one of her opponent's shoulders down and declared it a fall. Referee Pat O'Connor rejected the claim. Quote, Cora made harsh comments upon his ability and quit. This stirred up the audience, which filled the theater to overflow, and Cora got such a roast that she changed her mind and took up the burden once more. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> The Unknown apparently dominated the last five minutes and won the handicap match by lasting the full 15. After things settled down that night, there was an agreement for a third match to a finish. Quote, The house manager announced that he would allow no betting, but would offer a purse of $50 for the match, and promised to do so roughing himself if they did not strive earnestly for the coin. Ooh, roughing. Oh dear. Oh, yes, so you have Cora trying to call her own finish, getting mad when the ref does not allow it, tries to storm off, the crowd boos, the whole thing turns to violence and rough tactics, it turns into a time limit finish, the other woman wins the prize, now it's to a finish, and the promoter declares that to ensure honesty so people know it's a legitimate match, there will be no betting to make sure there's no match fixing, but of course, threatens to beat both women if they don't strive to win legitimately. That's a good way to do that. That's how you prevent shenanigans. Take note, Nick Gossert. On the 30th, she beat Florence Hilton in 13 minutes. On the 31st, she beat Bertha Starks in a two-a-finish match in 22 minutes. And on February 1st, she had a two-a-finish match with the Unknown, as covered by the Washington Times. The Unknown seemed to be pushing Cora around the ring until, quote, Cora forgot all about the rules, and whenever the opportunity offered, strangled her rival until that young woman breathed like a chicken with the gapes. And the gapes, in case you're curious, I know I was, is a disease that young birds and poultry will get, which causes them to gasp and choke and is caused by gape worms. See, we don't just learn about wrestling on this show. Referee Rob Roy McKay warned her several times to stop the rowdy work, and a loudmouth person who should have been suppressed with a club also interfered in the capacity of the unknown's manager. At the end of three more minutes, Cora grabbed her adversary's windpipe in a neat imitation of Evan Lewis's best trick and squeezed away until the unknown became blue with rage and lack of wind. The gallant referee took a hand, pried them apart, and held the unknown's arm as a sign that she had been given the decision. Diver's person started to make speeches, but the descent of the curtain cut off the flood of oratory. 
So what a great angle. What a great way to sell tickets to draw money in pro wrestling. You had originally Cora ready to have a match when some asshole in the balcony starts shouting about how he's got a real challenger for her. And then it's an unknown. I, I really still am curious why they kept the unknown gimmick this late into this rivalry yeah she wasn't wearing a mask she wasn't some mysterious grappler she was just a woman wrestling i so i, I don't personally get it but whatever you do the time limit draw you have her out last you have the you draw it out and it goes to a to a finish match and cora just comes out and chokes the living shit out of her she seems like a good sport the yeah. unnamed yeah, yeah. Yeah, but what's better than sportsmanship? A full bank account and lots of people buying tickets. Oh boy, do I agree with that. Words to live by, heal life. I say that, I'm normally a good guy, so you know, whatever. From the Baltimore Sun on February 2nd, 1908, Women on the Mat. Quote, a Miss Connors, a Baltimore woman, took Livingston to the 15-minute mark at the Monument Theater in Baltimore and claimed the $25 prize. Mr. Will Rome, who manages Miss Livingston and handles the watch for her, claims that but 14 and a half minutes had elapsed when Joe Barrett, the referee, called time. Mmm. Trixie. They're keeping it interesting for everyone here. Again, the Baltimore Sun on February 5th, 1908, Woman Wrestler Fails. It was a rematch with the unknown wrestler from the previous week, and apparently it was brutal. Quote, After they had been wrestling seven minutes, the police threatened to stop the bout on the plea that it was too rough. Oh, so they were just beating the dog shit out of each other. Pretty much. Hell yeah. Wrestling is still real to me. In the end, the unknown lasted 15 minutes. Quote, The bout created much enthusiasm, and it was decided that Miss Livingston should again meet the unknown in a finish match on Saturday night. Oh, more follow-through. The story continues. Again on February 6th from the Baltimore Sun. On February 5th, there was a rematch between Miss Connors and Cora Livingston, which was given extra time yet still ended after 20 minutes with a draw and Connors walking away with a $50 per the agreement. And one thing I keep thinking about while reporting on these matches is how much of the money actually stayed with the wrestlers who won the challenge. I'm under the assumption that most of these women, if not all of these women, are fake challengers working under different names, going town to town with a troop. They go up, they win their $50. They then go backstage and hand, what, 40 of it back to the promoter? I was just going to ask, like, how much of that is either, one, a cut going into the promoter's pocket, or two, just going, oh, this is just prop money? Yeah, because otherwise they would just be hemorrhaging the equivalent of thousands of dollars Every single week, every single show, doesn't really seem a good business model. So, yeah, despite wrestling having a long history of idiots losing money, I don't feel like that was the case here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because at that time, like, that was so much money. From the York, Pennsylvania Daily, February 8th, 1908, an interview with Cora plugging her upcoming appearance at the Bijou Theater in Philadelphia. Miss Livingston guarantees to subdue even the fiercest mother-in-law in Baltimore City. She has got a famous scissors and half-Nelson hold that is guaranteed to make any maiden, wife, or widow say uncle 16 seconds after the said hold is obtained. That's phenomenal. Also, I really would like to know the, uh, the history, the reasoning for people saying uncle. Like, what, why is that the exclamation to give up, to surrender? I actually know the answer to this. It's because it comes from an Irish word, a Gaelic word, because there was heavy Irish immigration to both Canada and the United States in the 1800s, and the word anical, which is Irish meaning asking for quarter, I surrender if you will, um, became a word that gets used colloquially, and of course the English-speaking Americans hear anical as opposed to uncle, 
But of course, one blends into the other, it gets bastardized, it turns to uncle, say uncle, as opposed to say Anakal, there you go. Oh, it just got bastardized. Okay. Yeah, that's why I was curious. I was like, in what way, shape, or form? Like, why was that the family member that <laughs> that people went with? Why was that the, the relation? But it's not an uncle at all. Who knew? I hope everyone learned something new today, if not just about Cora Livingston, then about that. But back to her heel promo. Quote, I got a raw deal in Washington last week, she said, but I didn't really lose the match. The referee was against me. I was wrestling a big fat woman, and she was so heavy that I was having a hard time. The minutes were slipping by, and finally I began to rough it a little, and the referee said that I was strangling her and gave her the match. Rough it a little. Phenomenal. After she just called her opponent a big fat woman. Surely you were not strangling the woman. It must have been a terrible mistake, ventured the reporter. I thought strangleholds were barred anyway. So they are, said Miss Livingston promptly, but there are ways and ways of getting holds, you know. Later in the interview, the crowd, Miss Livingston, rather pathetically, is always against me. I don't know exactly why. Their sympathies always seem to be with the other party. So yes, poor Cora Livingston, not understanding why the crowd is booing her and cheering for the woman whose hair she is pulling, eyes she is gouging, and whose neck she is trying to strangle. I can't imagine why. It's so weird. I feel so bad for her. Pobrecita. Yeah, you know, they're really out to get her. It seems like she's just trying to win. She's doing her gosh darn it, gosh darn it. Gosh darn it. By February 24th, she was advertised as performing at the Folly Theater in Patterson, New Jersey, doing three matinees and three nights. Yeah, that was a bit much. I mean, at least it wasn't like, well, it was just the matinees, right? She wasn't having to do an evening show, too. I ask, like, you happen to have all of the knowledge at your fingertips right now at this very moment? So, yes, you have to consider the sheer workload of what these type of performers did because even under the time constraint of burlesque and vaudeville style wrestling shows she's still performing 10 15 20 minute matches twice a day three days in a row Shit. that's what i was gonna ask if it was an e there was an evening show as well because yeah like three shows in three days is already kind of like not terribly ideal except for your checkbook um but two Ugh. Yeah, no thanks. You can practically hear them showing up for like the third night in a row, like some sort of old vet on an indie show today, like, all right, kid, listen up. We're going to do this, this, and this. I ain't doing this, this, and this. I ain't bumping. I got a bad back. We take it home in five. Got it? I don't know what you're talking about. I already, uh, I already do that, whether I'm working one match or four. From the Patterson Morning Call on February 25th, 1908, Livingston, quote, struck a foeman worthy of her steel in Miss Louise Tobias of New York, who was a former Patterson girl. Quote, both wrestlers worked hard and indulged in some pretty rough work, which was not liked by the spectators. But then wrestling is not a parlor game and neither used any tricks barred by the rules. Not a parlor game at all. Miss Tobias went the full 15 minutes, with Livingston demanding a rematch the following night. Quote, if Miss Tobias stays again, they will be matched to wrestle to a finish. And again, I always think about the economics of things, especially shows like this, because how many of the challenge matches were legitimate? Were any of them? What was the gate? If there were legitimate challenge matches, what percentage would go back with the challenger if they outlasted Cora? What stopped somebody who was part of the troupe from shooting on Cora and taking a fairly good payday and becoming a star in her own right? How many dollars were drawn in versus how many dollars went out? Like we discussed, what was the pay per match for somebody who was in on it, which clearly wasn't a $25 or $50 payout? Who can say? How many women were part of this troupe? Was it just one woman wearing different wigs in every town under a different name? I can't say for sure. Mystery. They didn't tell us. 
and we didn't unfortunately have, uh, you know, camera phones at the time. The Patterson News claimed that, quote, after the bout between Gotch and Bush at the Helvetia last night, quite a number of sports beat it down to the Folly Theater to see Miss Cora Livingston, as much champion among female wrestlers as Gotch proved himself to be among male followers of the game. And all who saw her work are of the opinion that she's there all right. So you have people who paid money to see Frank Gotch wrestle, at the time the biggest wrestling star in America, and then that audience hauled ass across town to see Cora Livingston, because at that time, she was that much of a can't-miss attraction for a match. And that's because there is no lineage to profit upon from her title reign. It's not like there's a connection directly from Cora Livingston as champion to what happens in WWE, Impact, AEW, so on and so forth. Which is wild because not not that that's like that's phenomenal, but it's wild that like she is not really mentioned or brought up or thought about or anything like that. And not that there's a lot of older women's wrestling that's thought about or mentioned or brought up, but like not at all, not even a blip. She doesn't even fall into the overall mythology of the kind of the NWA centric quote, history people, because there's such a weird cult mentality for people who look at the original NWA and think of that as original pro wrestling, as what pro wrestling is supposed to be, and therefore all of pro wrestling beforehand kind of gets wiped away a little bit or bends to a not realistic narrative to make the NWA the end-all be-all of pro wrestling. Well, that's why I... I have severe um, judgment uh, or I reserve severe judgment for anyone who talks about how influential, uh, influential and wonderful Moolah was for the business and how great she was and what a legend she was. I mean, she's a legend. Oh yeah. Thank goodness. You know, she was not problematic or destructive or toxic in any way. And see, she, and she certainly didn't set women's wrestling back by decades by forcing herself into the spotlight well past her expiration date. Yeah, not problematic. Pro wrestling, in many ways, is just an endless narrative stream of bullshit and usually self-serving bullshit. Not just self-serving to the individual wrestler, but to the narrative of a promotion that tries to posit itself as the real form of wrestling. And when Cora Livingston's belt, her title, her image cannot be tied to the foundation of a current existing property, then there's no real reason to bring her up. She doesn't tie into the WWE history of wrestling, the New Japan history of wrestling, the NWA history of wrestling, and therefore she's discarded because she's not profitable. As I say often and emphatically, if a museum tour ends in the gift shop, you didn't learn history, you were given a sales pitch. I don't know. I've seen some pretty sick museum gift shops. So reserve your judgment for yourself, Nick Gothard. But yes, I mean, you're not entirely wrong. But back to the morning call on February 26, 1908, Livingston, quote, Last evening took on Miss Mary Minnenen of Brooklyn. The latter is a husky woman, but she lasted only seven minutes before she succumbed to the deadly scissor and half Nelson. Well, that's because it's a devastating maneuver. From the February 27, 1908, Wilkes-Barre Time Leader, The Evening News. It was a longer piece about her career before her appearance in Scranton. I enjoyed reading that, quote, Wrestling is not her only accomplishment in the world of sport. She often goes out and plays basketball with the men just for the exercise. She asks no favor either, and can elbow and body check with the best of the masculine experts. I love that. Good. I hope she's out there throwing hands. She's throwing people in strangleholds. Well, you're, you're pretty close because her manager, Will Rome, quote, also lauds Miss Livingston's ability as a boxer and ventured, whether from experience or not, 
that she could make it lively for the average man who boxes for the exercise of it. <laughs> well, that's all we're looking to do as women is make things lively for men. That's well, our one motivation in life. I think it's amazing. Keep in mind, this is 1908, and her manager is straight up saying, you think she's a tough wrestler? Well, guess what? All you men who bought tickets, she could put on a pair of boxing gloves and whoop your asses. She could kick your asses, men of 1908. Yeah, I love that. There's quite a bit of nice shit talk happening here that is being engaged in. The feud with Miss Tobias shifted to Scranton, as reported by the February 27th Patterson Evening News. Quote, On Monday night, Miss Livingston failed to throw Miss Tobias in the limit of 15 minutes, which she allowed all comers. And the match to a finish was at once arranged. This time, the fall was secured in just a fraction over 13 minutes. This seems to have taken place at the Star Theater from what I read. Then it was on to Detroit. The Detroit Times on February 27th, having been stopped twice for cruelty to local Amazons, Cora Livingston, the female wrestler, is now drawing big crowds in New York. Good. She should be, as she should. From the April 12th, 1908 Boston Globe, a big ad about Cora's appearance at the old Howard Theater that week, using the public interest behind the recent Gotch versus Hackenschmidt match, to drum up interest in Livingston's challenge matches and catch-as-catch-can in general. Quote, Catch-as-catch-can. This is the favorite style of the champion wrestleress. No Greco-Roman for her, she says. So that goes. She goes after her victim much the same way a tiger would go after its prey. And these bouts are no patch-up affairs or, quote, fixed to make a show, but slap Biff bangers from start to finish. <laughs> Slap Biff Bangers. I was going to say Wrestleress should come back, but Slap Biff Bangers should as well. I'm going to use that in a promo soon. Coming soon. What a clunky word, Wrestleress. It's really difficult, uh, but it's like, it's good. I don't know. I can't, I can't fault it. From the April 15th, Waterbury Democrat... At the Old Howard, Livingston couldn't throw Olga Nelson in 15 minutes, but threw Bertha Myers in 9 minutes. So she's doing handicapped challenge matches, taking on multiple opponents in one night. The ticket buyers are definitely getting their money's worth. From the same page of the sports section, Hackenschmidt's still mad, and Jenkins wants gotch. So it really does show the context of where all this is taking place in wrestling history. That's why I really like this as a sequel to my Tom Jenkins series, because you see the overlap. You see where all of this is happening at the same time. Yes, she was toiling in the shadow of Hackenschmidt, of Gotch, of Jenkins, the three biggest stars of the day that elevated wrestling to an enormous level. Only a few decades ago, wrestling was a carnival thing. It was a backroom theater thing. It was a smaller affair, and within a few years of where we are now, this would all culminate in the enormous Hackenschmidt-Gotch rematch at Wrigley Field in front of 30,000 people. So wrestling boomed. It boomed big. Obviously, it dipped back down because of that match. But hey, at this point, at this time, this is like the yay old Monday Night Wars or where we are now with AEW and WWE both being hot. Wrestling was hot, lots of money to be made, especially if you're a star, even if you're a woman star, in this day, like Cora Livingston. No, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. I mean, scale-wise, it's hard to compare that to much. Maybe football in the early days? I mean, shit, I don't know. And one thing I truly appreciate and enjoy is, well, pro wrestling and match fixing in general was a common practice going back probably forever. We've, we've discussed that in our Olympic episode quite a while ago. It was very common in the 1800s and in the early 1900s, but it's still fun when the press takes a poke at it. 
from the Washington Herald on April 20th, 1908. Cora needs the coin. Lady wrestler, like Barnum says, fool the people. Takes her pal to Boston. Livingston woman's bout with Miss Waters of Georgetown, repeated in Boston. Only Miss Waters became Miss Morton. Same old policeman and same old manager. Oh, they were trying to pull a fast one on people. And if you're unfamiliar with the term policeman in wrestling, I brought it up a lot when discussing wrestling in the 20s. I mean, I'm fairly familiar with the 5-0. Well, (laughs) in the wrestling context, a policeman is the person who stands between the champion and possibly a legitimate challenger who would shoot in on them, or it stands between business and profitability and harm and risk. So it's like when I discussed the 1920s, John Pesek was a great policeman for Ed Strangler Lewis because you'd have the people demanding a shot against Ed Lewis who weren't under contract with the Goldust Trio. They would raise hell. They would be told, oh, well, if you can get past John Pesek, well, then we'll put you under contract and you can have a match with Ed Lewis. And then Pesek would absolutely murder them. Check out the Marin Placina versus John Pesek episode from a while ago. It's a wild story. But what would happen is the policeman beats the legitimate challengers who are calling out the champion, and then they themselves do business the right way and put over the champion to make the champion look solid. So it creates a hierarchy of quality wrestling because the challenger has been defeated by the policeman. The policeman is defeated by the champion. Ah, yes, of course. Well, what else are you going to do to achieve that? The article covers Livingston's claim of being the greatest woman grappler of all time, and though her press agent loudly announced her willingness to meet any woman on the mat and score a fall in 15 minutes or pay up $25, and has attracted some of the largest crowds that have ever gathered at the theater. The writer recounted chorus battles with an unknown and against Miss Claire Waters of Georgetown while in Washington, D.C., before taking her challenge act on the road. Now in Boston, she was set to resume her challenge and take on Miss Olga Mortensen. Quote, When Cora was introduced, she stepped forward, as pretty and plump as ever, and received a great ovation. When she threw aside her dressing robe, she looked every inch a title holder. Then came Miss Morton, of Boston, a casual glance by the Washington Herald man, and then a closer look, and who was Miss Morton? But the same woman who had played Miss Waters, of Georgetown here, and Miss So-and-so in some other towns. Gasp. Shock. The match was even until, quote, Cora started her rough work and the crowd expressed its disapproval. The spectators hissed and shouted and roared and threatened until Olga's trainer finally came onto the mat and mixed it up with a referee. This was an addition to the act as put on here. Cora continued rough tactics like grinding Olga's face in the mat, but Olga made it to the 15-minute mark. Quote, Olga asked for the forfeit, but the manager refused to pay, just as he did here. This roused the crowd to even worse threats, and finally the manager turned over the whole amount upon one condition, that Olga agreed to go on for a finish match the following night, which she did before a greater crowd, just as she did here. They went through the same performance and finally got a third engagement for the last night, just as they did here. More power to you, Cora. And it's wild to find out that more power to you is such an old saying. I didn't either. That always seemed like kind of a modern one or something that was like taken from pop culture, but like recent pop culture. So I love this story so much because it's a Washington, D.C. sports writer who just happened to be in Boston, went to a wrestling match because he remembered Cora Livingston, and is delighted to see the same match play out in front of him. He is just so in love with the fact that he gets to see the business be exposed like that. And the formula is so solid because, yes, it is the same woman from the same town, 
under a different name, pretending to be a new challenger for Cora Livingston so they can have a very well-rehearsed and polished match. And they have the challenger coming out, of course, claiming to be from that town. And does well. Cora starts in with a rough tactics, is being violent, gets the crowd all fired up. The manager doesn't want to pay out, pisses people off even more. So the audience gets their blood boiling. They leave. They're still riled up. And when you're that passionate about it, guess what you want to do? You want to come back to see if Cora gets her butt kicked the next week. Heel Heat sells tickets every single time when it's done properly. And that fucker was exposing the business. How dare he? And again, and this has been happening for decades, where a sports writer exposes the business to be a work. But I love his tone because he's not angry about it. He's not disgusted about it. He admires the carny spirit of Cora Livingston and all wrestlers of her ilk. <laughs> OG Mark. So now we are seeing the solidification, the crystallization of Cora Livingston, the character, the act, where she comes to your town and she takes on a challenger from your town, the hometown girl, and the hometown girl will do all right, but then because Cora is such a brute, she starts resulting to dirty tactics. She's throwing elbows, she's gouging eyes, she's pulling hair, she's going for the neck, she's trying to strangle people. Illegal, but she's doing it anyway because she is that brutal. She gets that audience so upset, so emotional that they're ready to riot. And she'll be like, okay, well, if you're going to be such jerks, I'm out of here. I'm not even going to finish this match. The crowd gets even madder. She goes back to finish it. She starts strangling her opponent. And then the, the match has to be stopped in disqualification. It's just madness. But it's such perfectly calculated madness to draw money, to sell tickets every single night. Because women's wrestling was a small market sport. Yes, she was drawing hundreds. She was drawing a few thousands at a time. But to get them coming back again and again, she had to make it a spectacle. She had to make it an emotional experience by being the dirtiest wrestler in the game. It was sensationalization of wrestling through outrage and violence. See, just think where we'd be now if wrestling had continued to follow that structure. So what I'm saying is we would be Japan. Well, there is an interesting correlation there because this is how women's wrestling operated during World War II when women were the main event. So therefore, to make sure they were hot draws, they would make it more outrageous than what the men were doing. So it would be brawls through the crowd. There would be chair shots. There would be throwing somebody out of the ring and then punching the referee. It would become more and more outrageous. And after the NWA more or less re-solidified men's wrestling and pushed women out as freak shows for the most part, Mildred Burke started introducing her style of wrestling to Japan so that wild and crazy Billy Wolf, Mildred Burke style of women's wrestling was the seed of women's wrestling in Japan. Because in the U.S., June Byers and W.A. Belt was more or less depowered. It was pushed way down the card. Women's wrestling as a whole was pushed down the card because it had been declared kind of the freak show. It had been called a circus act because it wasn't legitimate competition in the ring between two men. It was too wild and crazy. So Burke opened the door to Japan tours where women's wrestling flourished for decades. Before it came back strong in the United States. So what you're saying is I'm a genius when I made that um, correlation. Yes, that's obviously what I'm saying. So this is a good place to call it a day for episode two of this series. In the first episode, we saw the birth and creation of Cora Livingston, the human being, getting into wrestling, figuring it out. In episode two, I feel like we've seen the birth and the solidification of Cora Livingston, the character, the act, the business. I think so too. I actually, uh, this was, this is great. Good journalism, Mr. Gothard. I feel enlightened. I hope I hope you, the listener, feel enlightened. I feel, uh, if nothing else, 
you have a few more colloquialisms to lean upon that you may have not in the past. So how are you liking the story of Cora Livingston so far? I love it. I fucking love her. She's great. Like, don't get me wrong. Mildred Burke was fun and all, but like Cora Livingston is way more my speed. Obviously. Shocker. Yeah, a wild and crazy gal just trying to make it wild for showbiz pops. Yeah, I don't see the correlation at all. The <laughs> correlation. Ah, ah, oh man. It's too bad they didn't have gimmick finishers, because I feel like that would have been a good one for her back in those days. I agree. I agree. That would have been great. But I do love her just fucking choking bitches out. Yep, and there will be plenty more of that to come in part three, coming to you in a couple of weeks. Um, make sure you like on Facebook, follow on Twitter. I'm going to keep calling it Twitter no matter what. Instagram, because I like to post the articles, the photos, the things I find, because hopefully you find those as interesting and sometimes as funny as I do. So keep an eye out for that. So make sure you're subscribing. If you're on a format where you can leave a comment, a review, please be kind. I'm very fragile and I need your validation. <laughs> but we both do. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. For Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Hell yeah. Phenomenal.